Welcome. You are listening to the Fat and Furious podcast. In this podcast series, your host, Steve Bennett, father of seven, best-selling author and adventurer, will be joined by 23 of the world's most forward-thinking medical professionals, doctors, authors, and top nutritionists, where he'll share the truth behind living healthier and happier for longer. Today, I'm going to welcome back Dr. Asim Malotra, but this time he's not on his own. He's bringing Sherry Santana with her. Now, Sherry is a mindful practitioner. She specializes in working with people that have had heart disease and heart attacks and helping them on the road to recovery. She's an expert on the area of stress. And it's going to be a fascinating three-way conversation, which I'm sure everybody is going to find very, very useful. Asim, last time you were uh, with us, we were talking about you know, preventative heart disease, what we can do to avoid heart attacks and so on. And one of the things you mentioned was mindfulness, which I never put the two together. Uh, and you've kindly brought Sherry with you today to talk about mindfulness, which I'm really excited about because in all the podcasts so far, we haven't touched on this subject, so it'll be very new to our listeners, very new to those that are watching on YouTube. So introduce your good friend. Tell me how you know each other, what, you know, how you got to know each other, and then let's really dive into mindfulness, not just around preventing heart disease, but around good health in general. Sure. Um, well, I'm very de I'm delighted to have Sherry Ruano with me here today. Uh, we first um, uh, connected a couple of months ago uh, through a mutual patient of ours. Sherry, in fact, is a, a cardiac specialist nurse who also is a stress management expert, and she uses meditation and mindfulness with her patients. Now, the way I came across her work was a very interesting patient of mine in his early 40s um, actually suffered a heart attack several years ago. And when I discussed the factors behind that with him, you know, he was literally, uh, it, was a, it was a time bomb waiting to go off because, you know, he was on a high sugar diet, he was severely stressed, flying 200 flights a week, uh, a year, oh. you know, with, with his work. Um, he was sedentary and he was also a heavy smoker. And when I asked him how he got through all of that, and he sounded like a completely new person when I spoke to him now four years down the line, he said the person that had the biggest impact for him was this nurse that he saw that taught him how to meditate and reduce his stress levels, which also helped him adhere to the healthy lifestyle. And I think what was most interesting is that we repeated some of his imaging. He wanted some to, to be reassured that he hadn't progressed in any of his heart disease. He had a stent for a heart attack in one of his arteries, which was severely blocked, and some minor narrowings in the other arteries. Everything looked absolutely perfect. No change, maybe some reversal, who knows, but at the very least, no change after four years. For him, I mean, that was great news that what he'd been doing for the last four years had literally stopped everything in its tracks. And, um, you know, he essentially credited Sherry with, with really changing his life. For so, me, so the mindfulness helps with the particular problem itself, because that obviously helps you de-stress, but also are you saying that the mindfulness also contributed to making it easier to change his lifestyle? Well, I think that, yes, I think two things. I think it has uh, the data, the literature that's there certainly seems to be most profound in people. We look at heart disease with people with already established heart disease. Um, there is some good literature showing that if you introduce mindfulness practices or stress reduction or yoga, 
then it can reduce the chances of progression of arterial disease. And it makes biological sense because we know the root of heart disease is based upon insulin resistance, which we've talked about before, high sugar diet, you know, sedentary lifestyle, um, also linked to stress, but also chronic inflammation. And we know when people reduce their stress levels, those markers also improve. So it actually makes a lot of sense. But I'm sure Sherry is going to talk to you more about that. But it's not, it's not just about helping you know, people reduce the risk of heart disease, but it's also about quality of life and how they feel mentally. Mm -hmm. uh, and improving mental health in itself is independently associated with reducing the risk of having chronic disease as well. So it's a win-win. So it, it all, like everything we've been discussing with all the doctors and professors and, 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 and researchers, they're all kind of interlinked, aren't they? You know, we, 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 I was asked, you look at all the top causes of death in the UK, chronic inflammation, uh, insulin resistance, uh, being sedentary, too much sugar, they all seem to drive back to the same thing, the metabolic syndrome we've talked about before. So Sherry, tell us uh, about, Let's start with this, this, this patient then that you was a patient of both of yours. What did you do to help him on his journey and, and what does that look like, you know, starting teaching somebody about mindfulness? Yeah, so um, it wasn't easy. <laughs> it was a very interesting journey. I, I met this patient three years ago now, yeah, almost three years ago, and so he came out with very high level of stress, a type A personality, a very driven, very successful in his business. So um, I had two choices, um, and I said to him, well, I can teach you how to slow down your mind. I can teach you how to make better choices um, in your life, and, or you can just ignore what I'm saying and just you know, walk away. And he said, how are you, you going to help me slow down, slowing down my mind? And I, said, and I said the word, I said, through mindfulness and meditation. And we're also going to do yoga. When I move the body, I'm going to you know, help you to get fitter. Um, and I'm going to help you to slow all that down, slow the fight or flight response, slow the sympathetic nervous system. And obviously, by that time, all that for him was like a big shock. So this is basically how we started. And uh, so over the years, he started enjoying the practice. For the first time, that patient was able to listen to their thoughts, right, and also analyze his own actions and the way that he was reacting towards uh, certain stimulus, right, certain conversations, and even um, changing the way he reacted towards his business, his own business. And so there was a point that he said, um, I'm doing this session every week, right? <laughs> every single week. And the change is, it's been dramatic, it's tremendous. He's a completely different person, and now he's, he's very aware of his thoughts, his emotions, his actions, and the way he reacts. Um, very, yeah. very interesting. Yeah. So how do you first convince a very busy business person, it seems that he was flying 200 times a year, um, how do you convince somebody... Because that type of personality, mm. personality, that type A, is always at it. The brain's never stopping. What's the first step somebody, you know, if somebody listening right now, or maybe somebody listening knows somebody that's like that, that's always got to be doing something. Oh, yeah. I'm a bit guilty of that. Uh, how, 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 do you, how do you first convince us to maybe slow down a little? By using the scientific evidence behind everything I do, basically. Um, mindfulness has been shown in the same way as meditation that helps to slow down the brain activity or the activity of the brain. 
Therefore, I said to him, well, you can't carry on with this level of stress, right? At some point, um, you're going to have either either a second heart attack, you're going to increase you know, the risk of a secondary heart event. So let me explain to you the science behind that. So when you show someone that there is scientific evidence behind it, people are like, okay, I listened, right? So that's basically how it started. I said to him, we're going to, um, we're going to try to reduce your uh, fight or flight response. We're going to try to address the way you react to certain stimulus. Um, I'm going to teach you how to slow down your heart rate and slow down your respiratory rate through breathing exercises, through yoga as well. And we're going to get rid of a lot of tension that you're holding on your body. And this is basically uh, how, how he said, okay, Let's, let's give it a try. So basically, in, in short, um, showing the scientific evidence behind my work. And then obviously, you know, he experienced it, he enjoyed it, realized that I worked. And four years now. Brilliant. And what does the word, I mean, we know what yoga is, most people do. Uh, we know, um, you know, I guess what meditation is, but what, what do you mean by the word mindfulness? Um, without overcomplicating things, right? In very simple terms, mindfulness is just the act of paying attention, being fully aware of what's going on at the moment, right? What's going on around you, but it's also what's going on within you, right? And the inside, what type of thought am I having, or you know, how am I feeling? Why am I holding tension? And it's really just being present in in the now, right? Um, and it's, I also explain this to most of my patients, is the practice of observing, uh, feeling and listening with no judgments or expectations whatsoever. The moment that we start listening to this monkey mind, like, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing that, right? Then we're, you know, we're done. So mindfulness, we, we should approach the practice of mindfulness with a huge sense of compassion, right? Towards ourselves, also towards others, but firstly towards ourselves. Um, and it's, it's, it's as simple as that. It's just being present of what am I doing, right? I'm just turning the paper. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. I'm driving. I'm going, you know, I'm being out there in nature. I'm having a conversation with a few friends. Let me just be present in this moment rather than just being, you know, uh, focused or anxious about what's going on later on. So is it the sense of knowing that there, there is research, first of all, that backs up that the, the overactive, busy brain is, is unhealthy. Once you appreciate that, it's then, well, if, if I know that's the wrong thing, mindfulness then is then listening to your body, thinking about the thoughts that you're having and trying to steer yourself onto the path to avoid the stress and the anxiety. Is that, is that what we're yes, talking absolutely. about? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what we're talking about. By being mindful, um, we, can, we can reduce our stress and we can actually even find purpose and contentment with our daily activities, which is something very important. Sometimes we take for granted what we're doing, if we are enjoying it, we are not enjoying it. So we very rarely analyze or pay attention to, to what we're doing. So. Okay, so, so the mindfulness is, almost, is it almost like, that's like the umbrella or the start or, um, and then all the other things like the yoga, the meditation, whether that be religion, friendship, mm. all those things sit on top of that. That mindfulness says, look, I'm going to listen to what's going on in my brain and, 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 and re realise that there is research to say I need to slow down, I need to de-stress, I need to be less anxious, and then be mindful of what's happening. And then on top of that, we add in the other ingredients, the, 
the yogas and the meditations? That's a really, really good way of looking at things. Uh, But I have a different picture of what it really is. Um, So to me, not to me, according to the uh, Asian traditions, uh, mindfulness, it's only a small portion of meditation, right? It's actually one of the stages in in meditation. Um, And to me, the word yoga englobes absolutely everything. Yoga, it's, it's, it's a way of, of, of living your life and involves meditation, involves mindfulness, right? So to me, it's yoga. And, and within that, then you have meditation, mindfulness, you know, nutrition, relaxation, sense of community, uh, family, friends, you know. So that's... So that's I, got, I got it back to front. I said, we all know what yoga is. It sounds like I don't know what yoga is. But for me, that's the stretching and all that, but it's no, much bigger. No, unfortunately, it's much bigger. Okay. Yoga well, let's go to that then. Let's tell us about what yoga is. Right. Is so uh, I'm also a, a yoga therapist, so my views is slightly um, different to what you can probably maybe see on there in social media. So yoga really is... Um, it's really like being a rapper, <laughs> right? So when you're a rapper, you dress in a certain way, you behave in a certain way, you Can I just listen. stop you there? Yeah. They don't all dress the same way. You <laughs> never guess who we found out was a rapper the other day. Dr. Robert Holford. Oh. Patrick Holford, sorry, not Robert Holford. Patrick Holford, you know, has written those yeah. 40 medical books. He's just done a rap, which is having a go at all big pharmaceutical and big food companies. Amazing. And, wow. and he's done this rap. So they don't all dress the same, because this is a immaculate dressed <laughs> doctor in his 60s. Okay, so, but but yeah. it's all right. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I know what you mean. We have an image of what a rapper yeah. looks like, therefore we have a, an image of what yoga is. Yeah. So it's a way of living your life. And mindfulness is only a portion, it's only a part of, of yoga. Yoga, the, the exercise um, side of the, uh, the word yoga, it's a very, very small one. It's very, very small. Um, it's more to do with observing your mind, listening to your body, and moving in certain ways. Um, yeah, so that's how I see it. Brilliant. And um, have you got other stories where you've worked with same patients on, on other... I know I've obviously been a cardiologist and stress playing a big part on heart disease. Uh, are there any other sort of positive stories that we can learn other than the gentleman that's been doing it for four years? Or? Well, I mean, I've seen it with a lot of my patients over the years who have found their own ways of finding, you know, stress reduction. In fact, only last week I saw a chap who I was following up and he's been using Reiki as, a, you know, as a, as a way of reducing his stress and he says that he just feels in himself. Reiki? Uh, Reiki is a form of kind of, um, it's again another form of meditative practice where mm-hmm. people... Um, it's like a talking therapy where people lie down and use of crystals, isn't it? And you um, basically you use energy, so you move people's energy, you you sense their vibration, and it's, yeah, it's a more um, it's a practice where you use energies okay. rather than than leading um, mm-hmm. a therapeutic session. It's more like the person is there and you just guide and move their energies around. I'm not a Reiki specialist, uh, but I've, I've I've seen the practice. And but I think that I think the point is more people will find different routes and ways mm-hmm. for them to find that they are reducing their stress levels and they're sleeping better and they have a better sense of well-being. Um, and there are lots of different ways to do that. Of course, there are modern-day apps. I mean, I personally use an app called Calm, mm-hmm. which I downloaded, and every morning for 15, 20 minutes, I usually listen to this app and do some deep breathing. 
uh, it doesn't work for everybody. Some people need a lot, you know, something more intensive and need to see people like Sherry who can then guide them and get them started and then they can have a program or protocol they follow. Mm. Uh, I know what's also we didn't mention, which is quite remarkable, I think from Sherry's work, she's seen you know, scores of patients in her career, especially with coronary artery disease um, over several years. And you know, there's not been a single recurrent event in any of these patients. They've not wow. had a recurrent heart attack. They've not, obviously not died. Um, of course, this is anecdotal and it's a small sample, but it's still, you know, it makes sense mm -hmm. that if people are practicing in the right way, it will have an impact on them. I think what Sherry said about yoga as a kind of way of living, I think is really important because just expanding beyond this, I mean, you know, yoga tradition started, even meditation more specifically, it goes back to what, 5000 BC, Buddhism and Hinduism, I'm a Hindu, you know, by birth. Um, these practices you know, started from these religions. And part of that, and what's crucial to that, um, to that practice and way of living, is also about having a sense of compassion for your fellow human beings and your mm -hmm. community. And that's one way as well of people actually finding their sense of well-being, their happiness improving, is when they start thinking a little bit more about people around them. Uh, and you know, I think that's part of that change in mindset that is encouraged through mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Um, and yes, because you turn it externally mm. a little bit, don't you, mindfulness? You stop thinking so much about yourself a little mm. bit more externally. And there's loads of research and, and doctors talking about, you know, some of these blue zones where, yeah. uh, you know, relationships are strong. And in fact, the World Health Organization had their three pillars of health. And they're saying it, it's, it's uh, mental health. It's obviously physical health. But don't underestimate the power of social health and social well-being mm. and keeping those having good relationships yeah. with friends, with partners, with family, and really treasuring that. And I suppose mindfulness puts us in that right space. And, and Steve, you're absolutely right. And they're, they're all interconnected. Uh, and one of the top researchers in, in looking at mental health and happiness in particular in Harvard, um, a chap called Tal Ben-Shahar, who wrote this brilliant book called Happier that I kind of keep by my bedside. Um, you know, one of the things he says that the biggest determinant from all the research of happiness, which we know is again linked to physical health as well, is meaningful relationships. I think it's so crucial we forget that. In fact, there was a study only recently um, published which showed that um, when people who feel love more on a day-to-day -day basis felt love, that they're actually feeling valued and loved, actually are a lot happier mentally as well. So it's something we need to think about how we behave in communities and how we live our lives, you know, uh, in terms of the population. It's that giving back rather than receiving. In fact, uh, Dr. Robert Lustig says it well, doesn't he? He says, you know, uh, happiness and pleasure are two totally different things driven by different neurotransmitters in the brain. And those that are constantly seeking pleasure, which I have to say as a business person, I suppose that's what I was chasing for so many years. Pleasure chasing is more uh, internal, whereas you know, uh, happiness is more about giving. You get happy through giving, you get pleasure more from receiving, and yet happiness is the steps to longevity rather than Yeah, and in fact, in some ways, it's also, it's about, you know, the battle between doing something which is purely individually saying, and really in some ways selfish, mm -hmm. you know, we human beings, you know, we yeah. like pleasure for ourselves, versus something that's more outward looking and outward giving. And again, in ancient Hindu um, sort of texts, there is a battle, they describe very simply, um, that we all go through internally, which is one between uh, exploitation, if you're in a position of power or yeah. doing something, versus one of empathy. So that battle is that we should be having more empathy and less exploitation mm -hmm. with what we do with our lives. That's really, really yes. good. Yeah. Really powerful. Yeah. 
Let's, let's do a hypothetical then. So we've had the gentleman who's busy flying around the world, uh, has had one heart attack, wants to prevent a second one. You talked to him about mindfulness. Let's think of another stressful situation then. Uh, mother at home, just had second baby, chaos every night, noise every night, uh, and he's worried about uh, stress levels. What mindfulness techniques or advice right. could we give to somebody maybe... Thanks for such an area. easier scenario. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've also had situations like that, not personally, but uh, with patients. So the most important thing, right, in order for you to, um, to really do your mindfulness is to find a little time. That's the most important thing, right? Put your kids to bed and, and do whatever you have to do, but find your time, right? And then you sit down or you lie on your back or even you know, standing, but just find that time where you can gently close your eyes, right, and say, how am I feeling, right? What's going on on the inside? Why, for example, why am I so restless throughout the day? I've got, you know, I've been blessed with one, two, three, eleven kids. Um, I should be enjoying. So why am I feeling like this, right? So it's almost like finding that time where you can have these deep conversations with yourself, right? And um, once you are aware of what's going on, how you're feeling, then you start paying attention to your body, right? So what's my posture, right? Perhaps I'm at shoulder tension on, holding tension on my shoulders or is my stomach feeling quite tight? So allowing all these areas to soften down and to slow down. And point number three is using the breath as an incredibly important tool for us to completely slow down that sympathetic nervous system, you know, of a busy mom uh, with two kids at home. So that is basically what I would recommend. First, finding the time, observing your emotions, being present with how you're feeling at this moment. After that, listen to your body, start softening the areas, being really gentle, right? You hold intention for a reason, just soften it down. And number three, pay attention to your breath. Okay, so this it's is very different, isn't it, to relaxing? You know, because you could argue, well, I'm I'm relaxing and I'm watching the television, I'm relaxing. You could argue, and this was my belief for many, many years, well, I sleep for six hours. Well, I sleep much better now, but back then, you know, I'm sleeping for six hours, I'm getting all the rest I need. But that's very different then, isn't it? Because what you're saying is, it's you're asking yourself questions, you're deliberately breathing slower to just try and slow everything down. What, re what is really happening, uh, Steve, is that we are slowing down the activity of our brain, which is very different to, for example, when, when we're sleeping. We also slow down the activity of the brain when we sleep, but sometimes our fight or flight response is so, it's, it's overreacting constantly that we really do not allow the body to slow down and we do not allow the body to, the brain to, to relax when we sleep. But the practice of mindfulness, what it does really is literally, right, is we rewire, right, our brain. So we create new connections, right? And we'll, as I said, like four times, we allow the brain to slow down. We don't stop the brain, right? I always explain this to my patients as well, or when I lecture uh, somewhere, I say, when you hear that you're stopping your mind, that that is that's a huge misconception, right? So we are not able to stop the mind. Asking the mind to stop is the same thing that asking the heart to stop beating. So it's impossible. We can slow it down. We can slow down our heart rate by you know, using certain breathing techniques, right? 
we can slow down the heart rate, we can slow down the respiratory rate, and we can slow down the activity of the mind. We're not stopping, right? right? Yeah. So that's a very important thing that I want um, yeah. yeah, to... Yeah, and just to come in as well, I think the way that I also deal with my patients about how to convince them about the importance of mindfulness, and might be a busy mom with you know, two young kids, etc., is to actually package that information in a way saying that, listen, if you can start doing this for me, I prescribe it as a doctor and say, I want you to do this for 20 minutes a day. You will feel better very quickly and it will be having long-term benefits for you. And that the effect of this is almost like, it's like a medicine. Mm -hmm. I'm giving you a prescription. This is, this is a medicine for you that comes without side effects and it's gonna make you feel better and very quickly. So just do this for me. Can you just do this for me for the next few weeks? I want you to just make an effort for 20 minutes and you can download this app called Calm or you can go and do, go to a yoga class or a meditation class and you will see, you will feel those benefits. And I've not had anyone come back, Steve, that hasn't said that it's had a profound effect on them. Now, that is different to people being able to sustain it and actually, but often I find even with the dietary changes, you know, or people deciding, you know, say, I want you to walk for 30 minutes a day briskly, that once people start doing it and they feel the effects themselves, they're much more likely to adhere to it because we all want to feel happier. Sure. No one's going to push that away when they suddenly start feeling better. They're going to think, oh, I don't want to feel well. I want to feel crap again. No one's going to do that. <laughs> you know, so this is one of the ways that I certainly, um, based upon evidence, you know, convince my patients to try to give it a go. And why is it not at the top of the list for many doctors? Is it, again, because... How on earth does big corporate, big pharma make money out of telling people to lie on their back and close their eyes uh, and breathe deeply? I guess um, there's no money in it for I big companies. I think it's or? multifactorial. Part of it comes from a lack of knowledge and understanding to start with. Uh, I know Sherry works in the NHS. She works with cardiologists. She works, you know, like me. You know, we, And it's something that I've had to learn myself and look at the literature and realise how important and how profound it is. But you're right. What doesn't help is there isn't also an incentive for doctors mm. who also lack the knowledge yes. to actually prescribe it or yeah. a lack of um, empowerment and certainly in terms of, you know, what do we tell patients, how do we package that information? So I think that's another, uh, another issue. But I, because could, could, could it not eventually be something the NHS could prescribe? Because, you know, if the numbers needed to treat for statins are, and I'll keep, keep quoting that Blumenberg figure, it takes 300 people to get one positive outcome, <laughs> Uh, and statins cost, well, not as much as they used to, but could we eventually imagine doctors being able to prescribe a yoga class and funding it? Or does that happen Hopefully, already? Or? I would love to see that. Yeah, the potential is huge. And going back to what Asim just said about um, there's the lack of education, right? So and I, I, I give you an example. I work as an arrhythmia nurse specialist um, at Hammersmith surrounded by cardiologists and electrophysiologists, right? Mm. And there are a few research papers showing that yoga, call it a breathing exercises, mindfulness and meditation and, and changes in your lifestyle, significantly reduces the episodes of atrial fibrillation, which is an abnormal rhythm um, in the heart. Regular heartbeat. Yeah. Regular heartbeat, mm -hmm. yeah. So when you have atrial fibrillation, it's abnormal. You can have atrial fibrillation on and off, right? So, um, so me being me one day i print the research paper and i go to one of the main consultant cardiologists and i said i'm going to do this in clinic right um and i hope i have your support his research what's that it's like <laughs> i'm going to recommend breathing exercises mindfulness and 
all the type of um, stress management techniques for those patients that have a condition that is called paroxysmal atrial I'm not going too much into details, but it's like this on and off condition where the heart goes quite fast, mm-hmm. which actually is linked to how stressed, uh, how stressful you are. Right? If you're severely stressed or anxious or even depressed, the chances of you having this type of breathing dysfunctions increases massively. Therefore, I said to him, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> um, I was very lucky that he said, you know, I trust you and I, this is my background. Uh, you're allowed to do this. So that's an, just an example, um, yeah. but obviously I, I have the education. And, 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 but that's also rare though as well, Steve, you know, as yeah. well that you have <laughs> maybe and, so open-minded yeah. cardiologists that would well, be thank, supportive. Thank goodness that you found somebody that was, because at the end of the day, I guess if your heart rate starts to increase and go erratic, you get stressed even more. Yes. Therefore, it probably goes, it's probably that, again, that spiral of effects, isn't it? My, oh, my heartbeat feels really weird, so I'm going to get even more stressed. So actually then the mindfulness of saying, hang on a minute, Chill back and relax. And in fact, on that note, uh, I am seeing more and more patients as well who are coming in, and we know that data does suggest there's more and more chronic stress in society, who are coming with these symptoms. They haven't necessarily got anything wrong with them, but they think there's something wrong with their heart, and they come with the term we call it palpitations. Palpitations basically means an awareness of your heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And people are aware of their heartbeat, and they're getting anxious, a lot of, you know, young women, etc. And when you do a deep dive, they're worried about to have a heart attack, and, you know, check them over and say, listen, there's no evidence of this at all. Um, but they're clearly very concerned. Yeah. And when they reduce their stress levels, or I say this is all stress-related, yep. then you know, obviously the things, things resolve. Yeah. But there are so many people going out around there who are having physical symptoms purely because they're stressed. Nine, and that puts so much yep. stress on the system because they're yep. getting referred to, they're going to see their GP, they're getting referred to specialists. And a lot of people we see, Steve, in fact, you know, there are multi fact, you know, mm-hmm. lots of different factors in what's driving all these chronic diseases. But Almost certainly, in most cases, stress is there as well. Yeah, 1999, I had a company called Jungle.com, and uh, it was going bust. And, on, and I was having lots of chest pains, and I'm still walking a lot, and I'm still exercising a lot, but I was having lots and lots of chest pains. Twice I called 999. Twice I had ambulances come out to the home, and both times I went, there's nothing wrong with you, did all the tests. And back then, yeah, so t- almost 20 years ago, I mean, we suck on, get the paper bag was the answer back then, and just breathe and try and slow your brain, you know, to try and slow everything down. And then I must have had 20 ECGs that year. Mm-hmm. And they, eventually we didn't go bust and we sold the company to Argus. And within two days of selling the company, all my symptoms had gone away. And, and it, it, back then I, I thought, crikey, does, you know, stress manifests itself in so many different ways with, yeah. with different people. Yeah. And back then, if somebody had said, Give me that advice of just you're gonna to have to take half hour out each day to just calm down and breathe properly. That might have taken away all those symptoms. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Let's go back though, because we're talking about mindfulness. Can it also be have a negative effect and be dangerous? Because if I let's say I'm having a bad day and things are going not so great, and I now do a bit of mindfulness, I, I turn off the TV, put the book down, get rid of the laptop, whatever. And I close my eyes and start, and, and start to really think. What happens, what happens if I'm having negative thoughts? And what, 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 happens, what happens if I don't like what my brain is now telling me? Can it, can it, back, can it backfire? Yeah, yeah. Um, very, very important question. Uh, interesting answer as well. I, one of the reasons why I always do a first assessment and I tend to get uh, to know the patient before I even recommend any type of practice is to see if that person has the tendency or have had trauma in the past. Mm. 
right? And that it's something that I need to be really careful um, as well. So in the in the exam in the no exam in the example that you just mentioned, um, you just stop your practice as easy as that. Yeah. Do something different, yeah. right? Are you that that probably shows that you're not prepared to listen to what's going on in here. Mm-hmm. All right. And sometimes is we do have different days, right? One day yeah. you sit on the floor and you think of you know beautiful um, sunset in Canary Island, where I'm from, and some other days you sit on the floor. It's like gosh, there's so much. For my head, I really don't want to listen to that. So, change your activity, do something different. Go out there for a walk, walk in uh, meditation. It's one of my favorite practices. So, not necessarily by us saying that mindfulness is, you know, is a good thing. That doesn't mean that it can also have a negative effect if mm-hmm. people is, is, you know, are not ready to really listen to what's in there. So what I personally recommend, maybe other practitioners are different, what I recommend, change the activity, right? Drop the mindfulness. Distract your mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we change from focus your mind to distract your mind. Yes. And you'll come mm-hmm. back later on. That's also a way of practicing compassion towards yourself because, mm-hmm. hey, I'm not ready. Tonight is not working. Yes. I'm not going to do it. Why am I forcing myself, mm-hmm. right? It's not working tonight. Because if change. you try and force it, you're going to create more stress, aren't you? Yes. So You can't I, force. And, so it's, it's kind but of, also but it's about distracting your mind with something that's actually helpful as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, people choose to distract their mind often mm-hmm. by going on some sort of bender or, and drinking heavily or whatever, yeah, you know. Yeah. And that's something. the type of distractions. No, no, but I think but that's, but, no, but a lot of people do actually. Actually, yeah. normally, yeah. the way they deal with stress is exactly that. Yeah. They distract their mind by doing something unhealthy. Yes. So I think that, you know, you're, you know, you're right that it has to be something like maybe walking or something that is actually going to be nourishing to you. Um, and maybe in terms of the issue about, you know, if you're doing something that is going to mindfulness, which brings up, you know, some quite severe trauma that you've suffered, mm-hmm. maybe that's also a time to think, maybe I need to see a therapist, mm-hmm. you know, a psychotherapist or somebody yes. that can yeah. kind of get to the roots of that yeah. Yeah. as well. That's really interesting. So, so let's say one of three things could happen. You might find it works. So I'm going to try it next time I get stressed. I'm going to try it. Close my eyes, breathe, take a half hour out of my busy day, see what happens. And, and if, it, if I'm getting a real positive, if I'm feeling positive from it, do it more often, carry on. On the other extreme, if somebody's doing it uh, because they've listened to our program and find that actually it's not helping at all, then maybe go and see a therapist or a specialist to try and find out why you can't shift those negative thoughts. And then I guess if somebody's in the middle and they're trying to get and they just keep going back to their shopping list or something in their brain of what well, yeah, well, they've got to go and buy at the supermarket, then just try a little bit harder if you're in that middle ground and, mm. and see where you end up. Well, me, me and Sherry were talking about something more, a bit more specific to what you've mentioned, uh, Steve, the other day. One of the aspects, certainly on the app I use, Calm, and I, I'm a big proponent of it, I think it's mm-hmm. great, so it's not an uh, indictment on, on that. Um, is they talk about uh, this aspect of loving kindness. So it's about um, thinking differently about the people around you. And when I was listening to this Calm app, one of the things it said is, I want you to imagine and think about somebody you don't get on with at all and try and think about <laughs> giving better you know, vibes and energy to them. Um, and that actually can be a point where for a lot of people, I mean, let's say it's someone who's, I don't know, an abusive boss or something mm-hmm. like that. It's very difficult for somebody to suddenly start trying to think about positive feelings to someone that you know, has been verbally or physically abusive to you. So I think there's, you know, that mm. kind of um, drawing that line and thinking, hold on a minute, this isn't the person I should. I think in a general sense about just the, you know, giving gratitude to people or 
smiling more to somebody, a stranger you meet on the street or whatever else. I think that's a much better way, uh, in my view, of actually practicing loving kindness. I don't know what yes, you think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as, as you know, we were having this discussion the other day, I'm not a huge fan of loving kindness because I do work with trauma. Right. And I know that sometimes that can be a point where you are like, oh, we need to know when to give up love and, and, and when to be compassionate towards others. Right. Mm-hmm. But I do practice a very similar practice of love and kindness in a different way uh, with yourself, with your own body. Right. Just be grateful uh, you know, for just a simple fact of just being able to observe, to listen, to feel, to move. Right. So it's more love and kindness towards yourself yeah. rather than towards others yeah. because when you never know, Steve, yeah. what sort of triggers might be there. And I don't want to go. I know how to manage it because I work with trauma and I specialize also in yoga for, uh, for trauma. But it's, it's, very, you know, it's very delicate. So mm-hmm. love and kindness, you know, just I always teach techniques and practices that, that the person can actually... Uh, control, right? I sure. can control that. I can feel my body. Thanks for that. And you know, yeah. I can, I can see you guys. Thanks for that. I can hear you, and I can feel, and I can, you know, enjoy the the wind on my skin when I go around. So things like that. Yeah, it's um, mm. a phrase I wrote in the last book. Um, is you know, gratitude is a great place to live. You know, so thinking about what you've got and not so much what you haven't got. Mm. And I also wrote in the book that you know, mm. theft. Uh, a comparison is the theft of happiness. And one of the big problems I see, I've got seven children, one of the big problems I see today is so, I mean, I don't do a lot of Facebooking or or, or this digital stuff, but when I see it, it's always, they're always comparing photographs. I'm going, crikey, you're only seeing, you're both too young. There's a band called, uh, in the the 80s or 90s, whatever, Aha, and they had, um, the the sun always shines on TV. And, And what I take from that, from that song was that, you know, people only on Instagram and Facebook only mm. put pictures of their happy side. And, and, and mm. therefore, if we're constantly comparing what people have got, certainly physical possessions, or even even comparisons of, I don't know, perceived happiness or perceived wealth. Or the way people look yeah, as well, yeah. you know. In fact, in fact, in fact I, was, I was with Richard Branson some time back, and uh, we were sitting there talking, and he said, yeah, people have to stop comparing. He said, because I even get into the trap. He said, I've done quite well, but if I compare myself to the, the big guys in Silicon mm. Valley, and you know, if I sat there going, if I keep going, I've got to be the biggest or the best, you'll yeah. never get there because there's always somebody who's got something you haven't got. Yeah, yeah. Even, you know, Richard says that. So uh, drop yeah. the comparisons, yeah. a bit more gratitude. But I've gone off subject, I guess. No, but I think, nice. I, think, I think it's very important. Robert Lustig, who you know is a very good yep. friend of mine, and you've interviewed for your podcast, uh, and he did this great book called The Hacking of the American Mind. You know, we had before the book came out, we had dinner one day a few years ago. And he said to me, he said, Asim, tell me what, what the biggest cause of unhappiness is in the world today. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't get it. And I tried a few guesses and he said, and I'll do it in his American accent. I'm sure you won't get it. Asim, the biggest cause of unhappiness today, the Facebook like button. Yeah. You know, and that is people. And I know people who put posts up and they tell me and they sometimes take them down because not pe- people haven't put enough likes on them. Yeah. And they're comparing to other friends who've got more likes. And it's like, have we really got to that state where people's happiness has been determined by something which is really, you know, it's a, it's not true happiness, it's, it's fake happiness. It's not, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not the, you know, Facebook is not something that is going to give you a, a better sense of well-being, definitely not. And, and do we think that social media overall is, con- I mean, you know, every time you pick up a newspaper, although I don't believe all the headlines, but, you know, mental health, I do subscribe to the fact that mental health is definitely getting a bigger issue, for sure. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, and if you like, in fact, if you look at the stats recently of the rising young people, do, do we think that oh, it was 48, I think, percent rising young people with mental illness? And some of that could be awareness of, of it uh, sure. and, and so on and so forth. But um, do we think that a big element of that drive is, is too much social media or...? Definitely, yeah. yes, I, I agree. And it's also, going back to what you said, <clears throat> the same, it's, 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 a, it's deeper than that. It's actually the perception that you have, right? It's not so much um, I'm posting a picture, you know, me on Canary Island or whatever. It's, it's your perception, right? It's how you're actually reacting towards what I'm doing. That is where the thing really is, right? Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm actually trying my best to um, to not to post so many things in social media. I, um, yes, I've taken a lot of things down, but because I, it's, it's something that I'm very careful um, about the perception that people have towards me. It's nothing to do with my ego, but mm -hmm. it's also protecting, um, you know, the other person of what I'm doing, you know, your perception, what you might think, and yes, I'm really careful about um, that. I think in, in some ways the positive side is it's interconnected a lot of people in yes. the ways they wouldn't have been connected. Yes. Um, whether that translates into actually being happier is another question altogether, and I don't think there's any evidence that it means people are any happier. If anything, as you said, the overall result has been a net harm in terms of mental health. But in terms of sharing information, Twitter is slightly different. Although, of course, Twitter has its issues with trolls and all the stuff that goes along with that that makes people feel unhappy. But the positive side of Twitter and why I joined Twitter was, one, it was a good way of me sharing information, articles and blogs and things I did. But also, interconnecting with people of, of similar mindset and even different mindsets to actually share information and about research or articles that I otherwise wouldn't have come across. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the positive side of it. But of course... You know, there's all the negative side that comes. And in terms of Facebook and social media, I personally use it predominantly yeah. as, a, as a campaigning tool. I'm a, an activist and a campaigner. And part of that means getting your message out there sure. to as many people as possible. So for me, if I wasn't doing the activism and campaigning, I'll be honest with you, I would delete my Facebook page. In fact, I didn't even set it up. Mm -hmm. I didn't even set up my own Facebook page. And what Robert was saying, <laughs> I can believe that. Um, what, what, what Robert Lustig was saying, and again, that brilliant book, Hacking the American Mind, is what people realise is, because I was talking about my son who's always on his computer, and I said, how do I answer my son when he said, well, at least I'm, I'm still with my friends because we're there and we're playing games together. I'm still with my friends. He said, here's the thing. He said, the part of the brain where empathy sits can only be face-to-face. -face. It can't be on the phone. It can't be yeah. uh, over the internet or Facebook. Or even if you're seeing each other over FaceTime and you can see the video, he said, the part of the brain where empathy sits only happens with Interesting. a face-to-face -face mm. interaction. And, and you mentioned empathy, Sherry, early on yeah. as being a real important part of mindfulness. So maybe to be truly mindful, and I'm, I, I could be wrong on this, by the way, I'm, I'm just trying to put the jigsaw together. Maybe <clears throat> to be truly mindful, you have to be face-to-face. -face. Maybe Facebook and, and FaceTiming one another has yeah. some benefits of at least you're still getting some social interaction. Yeah. But if empathy, part of the brain, needs to be face-to-face, -face, maybe there's part yeah, of the, part that's, of the problem. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and you take us back to... Um, I, I'll give you an example, right? So... Although I am building a therapeutic, uh, digital therapeutic um, app with my, with my project, um, I'm very careful about certain things that should and should not be there. 
So, for example, if you ask me to sit at home, and, I, and I'm the therapist, um, half an hour to do a meditation practice, it won't happen. But if I go to the studio, or if I put a YouTube video, if I've got someone that I can relate to, if I look at a face, and if I go to my yoga studio and I see a person, a, a, someone that I can you know, relate, I can touch his out, then that, that connection somehow just like it happens. Mm. And then I'm able to be there. In the same way, if, if I go to the studio and the room is entirely empty, I don't on my own, it won't happen, right? <laughs> but if I'm with someone, yeah. if I've got that connection, it's, it just works. So I think what you're I mean, saying we're, we're is absolutely animals, fine. You know, yeah. Steve, aren't we? And yeah. I think uh, I agree. Uh, in fact, there's one study I read that even um, if you have an interaction, you meet a friend, even having your phone on the table, even if it's face down, has some effect on reducing the empathy through the conversation. Mm -hmm. That's oh, a for sure. My wife um, drives me mad in restaurants <laughs> because I think, oh, this is great. We're opening up to one another, then bleep, 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 and the phone's under there, and it's just like, well, that's just ruined the last 20 minutes, you know? So yeah, yeah. get rid of the phones when you go out for dinner. Yeah. You know, and, I, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm old enough <laughs> to remember the days. I mean, I got my first mobile phone when I became a junior doctor. When I was at university, you know, and obviously it's confounded by the fact that maybe people, you know, have a very romantic view of their university life and being happier and stuff. But mm -hmm. I remember, you know, we I connect with my friends, we'd have our, you know, we'd meet at certain places, we didn't have mobile phones, everything seemed to function pretty well, and we were happy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think now it's uh, it's a very different beast altogether. So we need to, I, to be honest, Steve, I predict a time, you know, we, this, this bubble is going to burst. And I think a lot of these social media, the way we connect is going to change fundamentally Let's hope so. because it's having, I think it's yeah. causing a lot of damage to yeah. people's mental health. Now, I, I do too, but let's, let's, let's throw a challenge out then because this is probably, I don't know, 15th or 20th podcast I've done. And yes, probably in half of those people have mentioned and touched lightly on uh, you know, mental health and mindfulness and, and so on and so forth. But most of it has been around, as you know, the diet and getting the diet right. And I think we've convinced everybody that's listening or watching that getting your diet right is probably the single most important thing you can do to live healthy and happier for longer. But the fact it's taken me so long to really talk about mindfulness con convinced us that mindfulness has a big part to play on our physical health, because that's what we're talking about, isn't it? As a cardiologist and, and Sherry, you know, somebody that, that specialises in mindfulness and yoga, convince me really both of you one at a time all together will shout at me or punch me or whatever but um convince me that 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 our brain and mindfulness really has an impact on our physical health you punch him first <laughs> <laughs> it's all connected our body you know, our, our the way our mind works control listen even the fact that we can slow our heart rate down from focusing on the mind and our breathing and reducing the sympathetic nervous system within you know, seconds to minutes of changing our breathing is evidence enough, Steve. Just that very simple thing yeah. that the mind is controlling your heartbeat. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. And, 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 we and know very easy for laymen that aren't doctors absolutely. to go, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, and we, you know, Sherry talked about this sympathetic overactivity. There are two parts of the nervous system. One's a parasympathetic, the other's a sympathetic. Sympathetic is something that increases heart rate, that gives us, you know, uh, makes us feel more alert, et cetera, et cetera. But that's in overdrive, as Sherry's suggested already. And what you can do 
through just focusing and using your mind is actually reduce the activi activity of the sympathetic nervous system and bring you more to the parasympathetic side, which is what about, is about relaxation and reducing stress, etc. Um, when you look at the data about how mindfulness practices affect certain biological functions and certain markers in the bloodstream that are linked to damaging cells and linked to all these chronic diseases, whether it's heart disease, cancer, you know, it's now, there's more and more evidence suggesting that depression is an inflammatory condition. Mm -hmm. Then using your mind and through mindfulness practices to affect those markers that are going to increase the risk of disease is certainly, um, the evidence is overwhelming. Yeah. But I think uh, a lot of people probably don't appreciate it as much because there are some still some areas of defining it properly and measuring it in terms of how people are using mindfulness subjectively is very difficult to do um, to see what effect it's having on them until you know it's much further down the line or how they're uh, you know it's not like taking a pill it's mm -hmm. not like checking your blood pressure it's yeah. very difficult to measure and um, before, before we share the same question let me just tell the audience that are watching or listening you know one of the first times we met I said well why have you sort of you know I don't know how many stents you've put in people or heart operations you've done but lots and lots and I said, why, why have you jumped from physically putting in the stents to now trying to promote the message? And you said, you know, I can, I can fix over my lifetime probably 10,000 people on an operating theatre, but I'm trying to get the message out to millions of let's prevent this thing from happening. Is mindfulness part of that prevention plan that we should all be Absolutely. Uh, uh, putting in place to, to prevent heart disease. Absolutely. And it's not just about even the, the very specific prescription that we're talking about today. It's actually about um, a philosophy and, and a way that we live our lives day to day across you know, communities um, to change culture mm -hmm. in a way that gives more and more people, if not everybody, the opportunity to actually reduce their stress levels but increase their sense of well-being. That's mm -hmm. what it's about, you know. I think the, and that that needs to be resolved because I think it's a um, it's one of the biggest challenges we have in modern day society. I'm convinced. <laughs> well, I'm almost convinced. Let's see what Sharon's right. got to say then, because because you know we've talked a lot about diets and heart and, and stress and, and, and smoking and all those sorts of things, but you're really coming at it from the mindfulness side, Sherry, um, and I suppose. It doesn't just lead to heart disease, it leads to probably lots of other things as well. But yeah, give me your five minutes convincing me that everybody okay. I know, my family, my seven kids and my grandchild okay. should be really taking time out to think away from the mobile phone, away from the laptop and the iPad. Okay. How do I convince my family um, that it is a major part to living healthily and happily? Right. And I'll, in order for me to answer this question, I'll give you a challenge. Um, so, obviously, without going into too much details, but I'd like you to imagine um, a situation in your life where you were severely stressed, very anxious, and almost like there's no way out, right? Probably we've all been there <laughs> in different ways. Um, and if you do this in a very honest way, I guarantee you that part of your autonomic nervous system will spike up, right? So your heart rate will start to slowly increase. Your respiratory rate, your, your, the way you breathe in is going to change, right? Your respiratory rate is going to change, it's going to increase. Your mind is going to be, you know, more erratic. The activity of your brain is going to increase as well, right? 
there's nothing happening at the moment. Yeah. You're sitting here yeah. with me. Yeah. I'm just telling you the story. Yeah. And you're creating it on your mind. Yeah. What if I now take you all the way back, mm -hmm. right? And what if I tell you now, you're in a safe space. Your body is a safe environment. Whatever is going on is not a threat to my life. Might be a threat to my financial situation, whatever it is, but I'm safe. And everything is going to be okay. And at the moment, I am in control. And I guarantee you that your heart rate will slowly come down. You're going to start noticing how your respiratory rate slows down. And slowly your mind will find that, okay, maybe I'll run away a little later, but at the moment I've got things under control, right? Mm -hmm. So if I could take you to that, you know, part of your journey where out of the blue, you increase your heart rate up, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you increase your sympathetic nervous system. Why not doing the same, bringing you down in all sorts of situations in life? Very good. I'm convinced. Okay. I am convinced. And you haven't been anywhere. I haven't been anywhere just yet. <laughs> <laughs> so that is, that's yeah. basically how I work when people tell me, how do I do that? She's like, okay. Analyze, observe, remember that the practice of mindfulness is that ability of um, observe, feel, and listen, mm -hmm. right? Being grateful because you can already do these three things, right? Yes. Analyze really the situation. It's a really, really horrible situation. Fine, but at least let me control, you know, how I can react to what's, what's happening. Yeah, and, and maybe start off with the, my granddad always used to teach me and What's that? You've talked to a lot of people going, how are you doing today? I'm all right under the circumstances. My granddad always used to say, the circumstances is you woke up and you're breathing. Let's start there as the starting yeah. place. You're breathing. You know, a lot of people are not breathing. So let's start there as the positive bit and let's, you know, let's build on that and fix everything else. So uh, that's great advice. Now, you mentioned a few times, Sherry, the, the flight uh, or fight responses in the body uh, and might have mindfulness can, can sort of slow things down a little bit. Is this also related to cortisol quite a bit, which is obviously the, the, one of the, one of the mm. hormones that, that, that gets triggered when we're under a lot of stress and we know too much cortisol over a long period uh, is very detrimental to health. Is this also what we're trying to obey or put on one side or reduce? Certainly, yes, absolutely. Um, the, um, we've got a doctor here, but <laughs> let me explain what the fight or flight response is. The fight or flight, it's a completely normal physiological response, right, to a, to a threat or to a danger, right? And as I said, it's, it's a completely normal, it's actually necessary, right? We need this fight or flight response for us to leave and to, you know, walk around the world. What happened and the main problem is that people walk around with a fight or flight response in a very high levels, right, constantly high, right? Therefore, when that happens, our, um, uh, what happened in the body in simple terms is that we start releasing cortisol. We start releasing um, adrenaline, right? So we walk around with very high levels of cortisol, very high levels of adrenaline, right? Creating insulin resistance. He's the expert on, on that area. But creating insulin resistance, creating inflammation. So that it's, that's basically... Cortisol basically is a hormone that raises blood glucose, and we talk about blood yeah, glucose right. being raised as yeah. a problem to developing type 2 diabetes. So, in fact, it's actually, as one of the risk factors of type 2 diabetes is chronic stress right? as well. As a contributor, not just the amount of sugar that we're taking. Yeah. So no. absolutely. if you're on a high-carb diet, you're eating lots of carbs, and you're a stressy person, then... Then you have a heart attack in the age, in your early 40s, Very which is what happened to this chap that you know yeah. connected us. 
Yeah, a friend of mine sadly died last year, uh, and uh, he was in his 60s, XPE teacher, so fit. Uh, and uh, it was really tragic because it was the week before his, um, his daughter's uh, 40th, and he was just flat out gardening, and everybody was getting stressed because they had the big marquee in the garden, and he was getting the garden all sorted out, and uh, and the weather wasn't looking good, and he was doing it, and, and, and literally came in and, and killed over that night. And, uh, and, and you know, Nobody could explain it. Nobody could explain it because he was an XPE teacher and never had any you know, symptoms before. But the only thing I could think of well, must have been a hell of a lot of stress mm. in that one week. And so stress is very, it just manifests itself in so many different ways, doesn't it? And an important thing to mention is that the brain doesn't really differentiate between a real danger, if we're having a lion running behind us, mm-hmm. or if you're imagining the lion running behind that, and then your brain starts like, oh, dude, we are in danger. <laughs> we need to run, right? It's like, there's no lion, right? It's yeah. probably a rabbit. But, you know, so the brain doesn't differentiate between a real threat, real danger. Or oh, perceived threat. Yes. Perceived threat, yeah. How do, so we talked a lot about adults and, and, and I talked about my little story uh, back into 1999. We must be putting a lot of stress on our kids these days with all the exams that they're going through. And I was talking to a teacher a couple of days ago and I said, I'm getting a bit annoyed as a parent because, you know, even my little four-year-old now is doing tests. I mean, what is this all about? You know? And then, so we've seen stress and stress and stress at school being put on by this massive exam culture, and back to Richard Branson, uh, one of his charities, Big Change, is trying to change education so it's not so much exam-based because of the stress we're putting kids under. And then the other week, my daughter came back and said, look at this website, Dad, what's this? The school had taught all the girls, gone on this police website to see all the areas in the, your own town where people have been raped or the car crash dangers or whatever, and she came home oh, petrified of even walking out the front door because, so what my point is, we're doing, so many things to stress out our kids at the moment. And, and, yeah. and then, then we add to that Facebook <clears throat> likes and Instagram and, and, and try, they're trying to be popular with all their friends and, and, and trying to compare too much. What de-stressing techniques should we be trying to help? I mean, can, can teenagers do mindfulness or is, this, or is there alternatives? Or I, th- I mean, Sherry may know a lot more than I do on this, but I know there are certain countries, I think in Scandinavia, where it's part of the curriculum that children mm-hmm. as young as even eight as part of the teaching, they have, they're taught to be, you know, taught mindfulness and meditation. Mm-hmm. I, I'd be a big advocate for that. I think that should happen across the world. I yeah. think that would be really helpful. Um, in terms of your issue around exams, I mean, I don't have kids yet. So I have nephews and nieces, etc. cetera. Um, I'm not aware that exams have increased. I don't know if they have so much. I mean, I remember doing lots of tests and exams all the time. Uh, when I was a kid. In fact, the first thing my dad used to ask me when he used to pick me up from school in primary school is, have you had any tests today and what did you get? Um, yeah, and my dad, was, dad was adding to your stress. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a good thing I kind of, you know, usually, only nine out of 10, bloody hell. Right, no, no, you know, um, no treats for you tonight. Uh, but I think you hit on something else. I think it's a combination of things. It may just not just be the exams or the tests itself, but you, when you combine that with social media and all the other stresses that kids have to, deal with today, it, it seems overwhelming. And I guess with a lack of, because you know, again, some doctors, um, I think Patrick Holford, uh, talk a lot about you know, how the B vitamins are so important for, for, for our mental mm-hmm. health. And, and our good friend we talked about uh, earlier on, uh, hacking the American mind, uh, you know, Robert says that you know, we're not getting enough Omega in the diet. So, uh, and, and if, if Omega and B vitamins play a massive role in our mental well-being, so if we're not, if we're sending the kids to school on, school on cereals, then they're having sandwiches at school, then we're feeding them pasta at home. 
so we're not giving the brain good nutrition, then we're giving all this stress with the exams and with uh, the Facebook and everything. Mm. We're heading for a disaster, aren't we, if we're not careful? I think there is some research, certainly, in terms of how the diet quality affects concentration in class. Uh, and certainly high sugar or cereal type foods, refined cereals for children has been associated with poorer concentration in, in class. Mm -hmm. So I think you're absolutely right. And of course, yeah, you need all these, you know, uh, vitamins. But again, you know, if people are following relatively healthy diets, it shouldn't be an issue. And of course, you know, the, the, the links between diet and depression, for example, certainly do seem to come back to benefits of the Mediterranean diet. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a 12 week study done in Australia um, which was published a couple of years ago that showed that um, the patients who had moderate to severe depression who adopted a Mediterranean diet over a period of 12 weeks, which, by the way, was low in, it wasn't a high starch diet, it was low sugar, low refined carbs, um, actually had significant improve, improvements on their depression score, which again fits in with our, the theory about depression being linked to inflammation yeah. as well. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, you, you did your... TV series and, and you wrote your book, The, the Poppy Diet. Uh, mindfulness, I guess, in the Mediterra Mediterranean areas, because of that, not so much you don't have to go to sleep in the afternoon, but that, 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 having that siesta, going home, put your feet up for 20 minutes or half an hour before you go back to work, that, that must be helping, whereas we seem to be just flat out in the UK from well, start to Well, finish. I think it's a cultural issue as well, and I think uh, it's important that when we talk about mindfulness, I, I think about, obviously, things that individuals can utilized to help them have greater resilience, essentially, yes, to external yeah. stresses. But let's not, the elephant in the room, Steve, is this. Unless we sort out what's at the root of it in terms of chronic societal stress, mm. you know, this for many people is, is nothing better, you know, in a way of putting a sticking plaster on a severed artery. If you're living in, a, in circumstances that, you know, uh, you know, you're, I don't know, you're somebody from a, a, you know, a lower socioeconomic background who's got, you know, there's overcrowding in the house, there's job insecurity, there's, um, you know, gangs who are outside the house, etc. To be honest with you, I don't think mindfulness will have some effect, but really what we need to be doing is trying to, you know, helping society and people live better mm -hmm. um, by avoiding that sort of situation in the first place. So we shouldn't let that distract from those sorts of policy changes and us thinking about how we can help everybody actually have the best chance of living in a relatively stress-free environment, which comes back mm -hmm. to some of these Mediterranean, traditional Mediterranean cultures and, uh, and you know, the culture even of eating together yes. at lunchtime. Mm -hmm. you know. um, in France, it's almost compulsory that mm -hmm. you have your dedicated lunch hour and you go and sit with your friends and colleagues and you eat mindfully. You know, I, I, the statistic I remember, the average Brit, I think, spends less than 12 minutes eating lunch <laughs> and usually it's a desk with a, yeah. you know, a packaged yeah. sandwich, ultra-processed food. It's, you know, it's lose-lose, isn't it? Well, there's lots of research that shows, yeah, eating food slowly is so much more healthy than fast food. Yeah, mindful you know, eating. Fast food yes. is, you're scoffing it down really fast. And I always say scoffing leads to the I mean, coffin. You know, you know, just, <laughs> yeah, even today, I mean, I've already got a, a memorable, a pleasurable, memorable experience that I'm going to take with me from this day is that on our route here, you know, um, Poppy, your, you know, one of your producers, recommended a, a pub down the road from here, which was mm -hmm. people were sitting there, they looked happy, there was a fire running, and we sat down and we had a nice, nice sort of mm -hmm. grilled salmon Mediterranean-style lunch. But actually that experience itself is so much better than what yes. often people do most of the time if they're just having a quick, quick bite. So, yeah. so we've got a, we've got, there's a lot of social things we can do to help. 
and probably people living in Akiria in the Greek islands where they've lived, many people live to the hundreds and lots of places that you've been to and, and Sardinia uh, and so on and so forth. Poppy, you know, living you know, into the hundreds. Uh, they're probably just not as stressed. So maybe mindfulness isn't as important in those communities, mm. but it's really, really important here then because of the lifestyles we're leading, the food we're eating, the, you know, the gangs and all these sorts mm. of things. Probably Brexit isn't helping. Uh, <laughs> and in fact, actually, when you speak to uh, Dr. Uh, 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 who was it the other day that was telling you? Uh, Malcolm Patrick um, um, was saying that actually if you look at where there's been big social outbreaks of heart disease, you can almost plot things like uh, things happening in Russia, in one area where all of a sudden people have, lots of people have heart attacks. Up in Glasgow, when they changed the way where people lived, massive heart attacks. So I think there's no denying them that oh, stress plays. Oh, migration, yeah. Migration. migration of people going from their traditional communities yes. moving to other places. You suddenly see a big increase in heart attacks in those yeah. populations. And, it, and stress is probably the biggest factor mm -hmm. that, that causes that. So I'm convinced then. So I'm convinced, you've convinced me in this hour that, that mindfulness is... It was difficult, huh? Yeah, yeah, well, I got it that. Yeah, but <laughs> it, it's, really, it's really interesting because, you know, I, back to Richard Branson, we, we did a walk uh, in, in, it was actually in Italy uh, some time back, and, uh, and his son Sam Branson did this big class on mindfulness. We did some yoga, we did, we did some meditation, and you got probably 50 business people there. And virtually everybody turned up. And, uh, and I went... I just don't get it. I mean, what's this all about? Why do we need this? But by the end of it, I just felt great. And uh, mm -hmm. so I, I do buy into it. Uh, but I had to play a bit of devil's advocate in this hour. I've asked you this loads of time, your top five things for, for living healthier and happier for longer. So Sherry, end off the uh, session for me uh, with, give us five tips around mindfulness that across generations we should all be doing in the UK. Right. Um, my top five. Good question. Number one is... It doesn't have to be five. It can be three. Five, three, three. <laughs> uh, my number one, without a doubt, is to practice yoga, right? Okay. Um, to listen to your body, to your breath, to your thought. Yoga engulfs mindfulness. Number two is being out in nature. Personally, it's something that I need. It's, it's, it's part of my life. Get outdoors. Get outdoors, yeah. yes. And just walk in nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And number three, again, me, um, is um, the sense of community. Having a chat with a, with a good friend, um, going back and see my family. It's just being surrounded by people that I know I'm loved and having that sense of belonging. Mm. I belong here. This is my tribe, right? Um, yeah. I feel like loved in here. So that's a huge, huge, important point. And pick up on all from not so much the first one, but on your last two there, get out in nature and community is what you witnessed, you know, in Poppy yeah. uh, when mm. you wrote your book. I, I mean, just very briefly, uh, Steve, I remember when I landed in Poppy for the filming before we, we were doing the research into how these people lived. One of the first things I noticed almost within hours of getting off the plane and landing, you know, being in Poppy was a calmness in the atmosphere. Automatically, you felt calmer. Mm. You know, and we were out in this beautiful place by the seaside, not very affluent, but you know, the environment itself was certainly a big aspect about uh, of how these people live and probably yeah. you know, conducive to why they have such good health. It's, it's such a great observation. So, Sherry, if I could just actually take your three quickly and just say, let's reverse them completely the way around. So, spend more time with your loved ones, 
get outdoors, so go walking with your loved ones if you can, get outdoors more than... We haven't really ever covered this on any of the podcasts, uh, but lots of stuff I read, you know, it, there is so much power in the outdoor. That's what we were yeah. designed to be. And here we are in a TV studio with artificial lights, but, you know, what we should be is outdoor more because that's what the human body, uh, the sunshine, lots of benefits from getting more sunshine, uh, and then more time with your relatives. And if you get those two right, Mindfulness is less important because you've got those two bits, right? But a, a good step then is to start taking some time to yourself, listening to your thoughts, trying to correct some of those thoughts if you can, and then if you can't, maybe then go out and get some help because mm. I think what we've proven or you've proven together in this hour that our brain and our thoughts have a massive influence on our physical well-being. And, and one last point is... So I told you get to five. <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm saying going back to this too, uh, when you say that maybe mindfulness is not so important, the fact that you're already with your loved ones, you're paying attention to them, right? You're sharing, you know, experiences with them. You're outdoors in nature. You are already practicing mindfulness. Yes. So you don't really have to sit on the floor at home, I'm doing my mindfulness. You no. are already being mindful by being around your family, around your loved ones, and walking, you know, barefoot on the beach, just, you know, feeling the sand. You're doing mindfulness. You don't have to sit 20 minutes. So that's, that's my brilliant. last point. Well, we're going to put up links to your website. I think most of our viewers and listeners know us very, very well already. Uh, thank you for proofreading my uh, recent book uh, and, and going all the way through it. It's a brilliant book. From cover to I'm cover. excited about it coming out. Oh, thank you very, very much. And I would say to anybody that's been listening, go, yeah, I get this. Make sure you listen to this podcast, maybe replay it a, a second time. Also listen to um, Robert Lustig's because that's all around the difference between pleasure and happiness and how we're seeking too much pleasure, which sometimes actually makes you less happy. So those two things together with everything we've uh, uh, listened to from Sherry and yourself today. Thank you very, very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. See you. Thank Sherry, you. thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, then why not subscribe to the full series so you can hear from all the incredible health professionals we spoke to. Before you go, though, visit Amazon today and pick up your copy of Fats and Furious by Steve Bennett. And as a thank you for being a subscriber, we'll even give you a third off. Simply use the discount code FFPODCAST and you'll get the full story featuring all 23 medical professionals.